Welcome to Rising. We have a momentous show for you today. We're going to get right into a story that I know many of our regular viewers have a lot of interest in. And there was finally some serious disclosures that we're, of course, talking about the Epstein news. Let's get right into it. Yeah, Robbie, the day is finally here. Last night, dozens of pages of previously unsealed Jeffrey Epstein court documents were finally released. Last month, New York Judge Loretta Kreska ordered the release of the names of approximately 150 people who were included in previously redacted parts of a settled civil suit against Ghislaine Maxwell, Epstein's associate and former girlfriend. The names from the suit, filed by one of Epstein's victims, Virginia Guifrey, were originally withheld on the grounds of privacy. About 40 documents in total were released last night. The remainder will, will unseal on a rolling basis over the coming days. So who exactly showed up in these documents thus far? So as was previously reported, former President Bill Clinton's name appears over 50 times in the unsealed filings, with one victim testifying that Epstein confided the Clinton, quote, liked them young. Clinton is joined in the documents by former President Donald Trump, who Epstein uh, often, quote, called up for trips to Atlantic City. Lawyer Alan Dershowitz who, uh, of course, has admitted to knowing Epstein, um, serving as his legal counsel, but denied all wrongdoing. Uh, for, he's also in there. Former modeling agent Jean-Luc Brunel was found dead in his cell while on trial for other sex trafficking charges in 2022. His name appears. Singer Michael Jackson, musician David Copperfield were both spotted by witnesses at Epstein's homes, according to these disclosures. And, of course, Prince Andrew from the UK, royal family, who one victim did accused of groping her in these documents. Also named so far are Hollywood stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Kate Blanchett, Cameron Diaz, not accused, by the way, of any wrongdoing. One victim simply testified that Epstein often bragged of his celebrity connections, including with these stars in particular. So we're keeping a close eye on the documents and we'll be continuing to cover more names as they are released. We should also say that David Blaine and Michael Jackson were not accused of wrongdoing in those documents. Right, right, certainly. They're, you know, these are, so these are documents pertaining to the trial of uh, Glenn Maxwell and uh, the accusations of uh, Virginia Giffray. So these are statements by witnesses who might have said these people were there or in Epstein's circle or names that he mentioned. Again, that, this is a man who, who actively sought out rich and powerful people and who bragged about his connections to rich and powerful people. So it is not you know, it, is, it doesn't necessarily indicate any wrongdoing—it, it in fact, does not indicate any wrongdoing of any kind for Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, DiCaprio et cetera, right. that they appear here. Uh, you know, witnesses are just describing interactions that he had. Right. Of course, for others that are mentioned, there are actual accusations, yes. and we'll get into those in just a second. Uh, meanwhile, disgraced Epstein associate Jillian Maxwell spoke out on the documents released from, uh, from her federal prison cell. She said, quote, it's all about men abusing women for a long period of time, and it's only one person in jail, a woman. Hmm. Uh, I saw at least one commentator noting that this is the logical, uh, fateful end of a kind of liberal identity politics to try to gaslight victimhood. girl boss gatekeep. Yes, yeah. of all of all the sex traffickers, only the woman has to pay the yeah. price, and we should somehow feel bad. I mean, for her two of the other accused sex traffickers killed, well, died in died prison, in, <laughs> allegedly yeah. killed themselves. Yeah. So that it's not it's not that they were not being attempted to be brought to justice. Now, obviously, people have theories about that Epstein was deliberate 
deliberately killed, that kind of thing. Yeah. But they were, they were, they haven't like gotten off scot free. They were in the process yeah. of being brought so, to justice. So let's get into the substance of. Um, some of the accusations that were made in the context of these civil suit documents. I'm particularly interested to hear what you made of um, the, uh, the, sorry, the Dershowitz allegations, sure. since you had an opportunity to interview him on the show about them, and he's given a number of interviews where he has opined on it, and then, of course, what was it, the, the witness later retract, uh, one of the witnesses, the accuser yeah, the accuser. So we, uh, we did really grill, and, you know, we've had, viewers know we've had Dershowitz on the show a number of times to talk about a whole range of uh, legal issues. Um, we also had him on, myself, uh, Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky, former uh, hosts of Rising. We interviewed him, uh, it's probably a year and a half ago now, uh, about him being accused by Virginia Giffray, one of, one of the, the most prominent of the Epstein accusers, and he denied all of it. I think he threatened a, a kind of countersuit, um, defamation-based situation, denied all of it, um, you know, did—was forthright in admitting that he had m many interactions with Epstein, uh, was on the, was on the, the plane. Um, I, I, I don't remember the exact— other details he got into. People should certainly go back and watch that interview if they want. Subsequent to that, after that, Virginia Giuffre retracted the accusation against Alan Dershowitz, said she was mistaken, she had wrongly identified him. Yeah. So, look, anyone can make of that whatever they want. My only point was that I couldn't, like, persist in thinking. If someone accuses some, someone of a, of a crime this serious, of this nature, and then walk and then takes it back, I don't know how you can, you know, persist in. I, I would have to. You'd have to almost like continue as believing him, even though the person who accused him no longer does. Well, it's interesting just, to, I think, to read for context yeah. what he's been accused of in these newly released documents. So it says that then minor who's called Jane Doe Three in these documents, um, says that one such powerful individual uh, that Epstein forced, then minor Jane Doe Three to have sexual relations with was former Harvard law professor Alan Dershowitz, a close friend of Epstein and well-known criminal defense attorney. Epstein required Jane Doe Three to have sexual relations with Dershowitz on numerous occasions while she was a minor, not only in Florida, but also on private planes in New York, New Mexico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. In addition to uh, being a participant in the abuse of Jane Doe Three and other minors, Dershowitz was an eyewitness to the sexual abuse of many other minors by Epstein and several of Epstein's co-conspirators. Dershowitz would later play a significant role in negotiating a non-prosecution agreement on Epstein's behalf, yeah. and, and so forth and so on. People so, should read all of this, and they, and they should hear what he had to say, and they, they are free to form their own conclusions, is what I would say. Well, he already has um, responded, uh, doing an interview. Uh, I think pre precisely because his name was one of the more prominent ones that went trending on Twitter and a lot of people, and which were a lot, a lot of people were talking about. Uh, do we have that clip? I, th I was pretty sure that we were going to play that today, since it's a pretty um, compelling thing for mm -hmm. someone who was so recently accused to come and talk to the press on the same day that those accusations were made, uh, assume, with the assumption that he was going to get ahead of the accusations. It's not clear to me that the uh, interview was received especially well, however. Yeah, he, he said that he welcomed the release of these names, that it would, uh, that it, he felt it was 
clearing of him. Obviously, he's done a number of interviews on this subject with all sorts of people. Um, he did uh, actually he did an interview with uh, Kim Iverson, also former right. host of Rising, on her show on Rumble, uh, where he specifically addressed the accusation that some have made that Jeffrey Epstein was an intelligence agent, uh, either for the U.S. government or I think specifically the Israeli government. Uh, Alan Dershowitz obviously having a lot of ties with Israel, uh, being the choice of, of Benjamin Netanyahu to represent Israel before the, uh, 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 you know, uh, international human rights uh, court. So, and uh, Dershowitz denied that um, he had anything to do with uh, with uh, with Israel. Uh, we we do have this clip. Let's play it. Now, the one point I do want to make is that I understand all the feminist groups and the radicals who think this is the worst thing in the world that anybody ever had any contact with Jeffrey Epstein. Where are all those radical feminists when it comes to the Hamas rapes of young Jewish girls, sexual abuse, beheadings? They are quiet. They are silent. The incredible hypocrisy of the Me Too movement. Me Too, except if you're a Jew. If, uh, and I want to have a list of all the radical feminists who are pushing hard, and I understand that, to get all these names revealed, and I want to know how many of them have ever actually condemned Hamas for the rapes that we now know occurred and the murders that occurred? How many have been silent? And how many, like the National Lawyers Guild, have actually approved of what Hamas did? So let's put this in context. What do you make of that response and conflating those issues? I mean, I've, no, I, I'm not a radical feminist. I absolutely <laughs> I condemn Hamas daily on the show. I condemn their murder. I condemn the sexual assault that they're uh, guilty of. And I also think it's very important to get to the bottom of the crimes that Jeffrey Epstein is responsible and hold any associates of his that were responsible for sexual misconduct with underage people. Um, to account as well. It does feel interesting to try to shoehorn a kind of identity politics defense um, mm -hmm. that somehow there's a disinterest in sexual assault victims because they're Jewish, but sexual assault perpetrators maybe also I because mean, they're Jewish. And it also does seem to me to ignore the fact that the overwhelming majority of people who are interested in this story are normies or liberals who are very cond condemnatory of both yeah, groups of sexual assault. I, I don't. I don't know why he's conflating some uh, ostensible fringe leftist perspective with the overwhelming majority of Americans who are concerned I mean, about I, these I, accusations. Of I can sex think of plenty, ex plenty of examples of you know me too very Me Too-involved, activist, feminist-type people who suddenly went silent when, for instance, it was Joe Biden being accused. I mean, you, oh, you're, you yourself have been sounding that drum. Absolutely. I'm not but seeing, he didn't yeah, yeah, raise yeah. that comparison. That has happened in the past. But like I'm the not Alyssa Milano, Time's Up, Me Too crew right. is very much um, sympathetic to Israel and the victims of the October 7th yeah. attack and sympathetic to Epstein's victims. That does seem like a bit of a lark. So we'll see if he continues with that line of questioning and if he'll be willing to come back on the show to talk about these additional, um, this additional news story. Yeah, and I hope to get more releases uh, from, the, uh, from, the, uh, from the disclosure soon. Uh, again, I'm particularly interested in the, in the government of the, Vir of the Virgin Islands, uh, given what we know about um, how they sought to curry favor with uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Right, well, as pointed out by Matt Iglesias on Twitter, uh, Trump made U.S. Attorney Alex Acosta, who gave Epstein his mysterious sweetheart plea deal, Secretary of Labor. And then when it erupted as a matter of controversy, Acosta just quietly resigned and nobody ever made him testify before Congress or anything about what happened. Speaking of politics, Robbie, I I'm also very interested in the extent to which our own American government and politicians who are now running for president. Um, 
are implicated in this kind of scheme. Donald Trump, of course, uh, had a close relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, Acosta was literally the architect of the sweetheart plea yeah. deal that made it so that after being convicted of sex crimes back in the early odds, he still was able to get out of jail and continue these kinds of close relationships and to have this position of influence for many years afterward. To make someone like that a chief, to give them a chief cabinet position and to, for that not to have stuck in any way is like a really interesting indictment of what's been going on in our media culture, what people were willing and interested in going after Donald Trump over, Russia, 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 and these kind of very serious and much more substantiated crimes that uh, Acosta associated with seeming to fly right under the radar. Well, yeah, I mean, he did. Acosta did have to resign when this controversy uh, again became front and center. He did uh, it was a remarkable um, uh, case of undercharging a crime, something uh, prosecutors aren't often uh, known for. Um, of course, you know, different. Uh, different defendants get different levels of justice given their access to wealth and power and prestige. Um, you want to, you know, you want to, you, you you pick up a regular scumbag sex criminal off the street who doesn't have a lot of money. You can give them 40 years because they're not going to be able to fight it powerfully. You go, you take on someone like Jeffrey Epstein who has, you know, friends a, in high places, a, a, friends in high places, and a gazillion dollars and a private island and an ability to drag things out through the court. Maybe you settle for um, for what was unbelievably lenient charges, basically house arrest, an ankle bracelet, and then a, a total ability to reinsert himself into high society. Still hobnob, still call Bill Gates um, the, the, like the wealthiest man in the world at the time, and uh, and and you know people at like Bank of America say, "Oh, we can't wait to hug and kiss you again." Something like that was in the emails. Really, uh, really disgusting. And yeah, he did not have to answer. He did not ever was never expected to answer as many questions about that as as he might have. Yeah. So. All right. We will continue to follow this story as more names are released on a rolling basis. Stay tuned. More rising next. Robbie, what is on your radar this morning? Well, Claudine Gay has resigned as president of Harvard University, though she will keep her job as a faculty member in the political science department and her $900,000 a year salary. Well, that's something of an achievement, given that her misdeeds were academic in nature. Gay was caught plagiarizing numerous passages from other scholars. But in some corners of the media, the fact that she committed plagiarism matters much less than the reality that it was conservative writers who caught her. The Washington Free Beacon's Aaron Sibarium, a reporter at a right-leaning news website, performed the lion's share of the digging. Christopher Brunette, a conservative writer, Christopher Rufo, a conservative writer and activist, and also Phil Magnus, a libertarian economic historian, also made important contributions. Astonishingly, some mainstream standards keepers have decided that the ideologies of the accusers have essentially discredited the accusations accusations. Cue the Associated Press, which posted the following, remarkable observation on X, formerly Twitter. Harvard president's resignation highlights new conservative weapon against colleges, plagiarism. The tweet is doubly wrong. It inadvertently suggests that plagiarism is the weapon conservatives are wielding, as if conservatives are the ones committing plagiarism when the so-called weapon is actually plagiarism allegations. In either case, the framing is ludicrous. Conservatives did not invent this idea. On the contrary, many mainstream journalists have made entire careers of digging up speeches, books, and articles written by conservatives and others and checking them for plagiarism. To take just one prominent and seemingly forgotten example, 
example, consider Andrew Kaczynski, a reporter for CNN. Kaczynski is a prolific discoverer of plagiarism committed by conservatives. He exposed conservative television personality Monica Crowley, right-wing sheriff David Clark, and many, many others. His work uh, was ignored because it is—should we ignore his work because it is on some level politically motivated? Of course not. To his credit, Kaczynski actually criticized the AP's framing. CNN has, it should be noted, made perfectly worthwhile contributions to the gay plagiarism story. To make things abundantly clear, the media has never chosen to ignore a plagiarism scandal or write it off as trivial or unfair merely because the accuser has a political agenda. Plagiarism allegations derailed the 1988 presidential campaign of then-Senator Joe Biden, who was accused by The New York Times and others of copying elements of a speech by British Labor Party leader Neil Kinnock. Biden also copied from both John F. Kennedy and Robert F. Kennedy and, quote, did something very stupid, his words, in law school when he stole five pages from a law review article and submitted them as part of a legal brief. You would have to have been born yesterday to think that allegations of plagiarism are a new political weapon invented by conservatives. Oh, and if the tweet from the AP weren't bad enough, the media outlet also criticized Christopher Rufo for saying that Gay had been scalped on X. Now, you can certainly say that was inappropriate language, absolutely 100 percent. But the AP described the word scalped as invoking a gruesome practice taken up by white colonists who sought to eradicate Native Americans, when about a thousand people pointed out on social media that the Native Americans, among other groups, to be sure, were the ones known for scalping. The AP stealth edited their article, as in they changed it, without making any acknowledgment of correction to begrudgingly admit that the practice was, quote, used by some tribes against their enemies. Now, as a journalist, I thought it was standard practice that when you make a mistake, you not only correct it, but you note the bottom or the top of the article that you've done so. Maybe the AP feels differently. Alas, other aspects of the media narrative surrounding Gay's ouster are just as depressing. Multiple commentators have decided that Gay was ultimately forced out because of racism. New York Times opinion writer Mara Gay, no relation as far as I know, said that Gay's critics were actually attacking diversity and multiculturalism. Let's watch. It's an attack on uh, people who are pluralists and believe that you should bring people from all over the world together uh, of diverse backgrounds and that you, you actually have more scholarly rigor and, and more um, value can be uh, brought by having people from different backgrounds. This is an attack on diversity. This is an attack on multiculturalism and on many of the values that a lot of us hold dear, and in fact, anybody really who is around my age in their 30s who went to any uh, public, major public university or private university in this country, you know, these are values that are very important. Mara Gay later says that, quote, you can see and hear the racism. The Times' Nicole Hannah-Jones expressed similar sentiments. Reverend Al Sharpton said the departure of Gay was an attack on every black woman. And Ibram X. Kendi, an anti-racist scholar, blamed a, quote, racist mob. Is it racist to demand that the president of Harvard University be held to the same standard as other faculty members, the same standard as her students? Harvard takes plagiarism very seriously when students are concerned. As one member of Harvard College's Honor Council wrote in an editorial for the Harvard Crimson, there is one standard for me and my peers and another much lower standard for our university's president, obviously writing that before she did, in fact, resign. Now, saying that Gay was ousted because she's a black woman is insulting to hardworking scholars of all races and sexes. She was the president of the most elite 
educational institution in the country was finally held accountable for obvious and verifiable academic wrongdoing, and she's still going to be teaching for some reason. I'll just conclude by noting yet again that, yes, it is true that the individuals who first called attention to gays' plagiarism have a political agenda, and you are free to reject that agenda. If they make accusations that are unfair, you should reject them. But everyone in the media is serving a political agenda. Were the people who made similar allegations against Neil Gorsuch political actors? Of course they were. I'm sure this was true of the 40-year-old accusations against Joe Biden as well. I think that many in the media are simply taken aback that some conservatives are finally playing the same game that they have been playing for a long while. Uh, so first I'd just like to say that you cited Gorsuch just there, and Joe Biden. I would also add Alan Dershowitz and Charles Ogletree as Harvard professors who have faced um, plagiarism allegations. But I would cite them and make a point of distinction between them and Claudine Gay, insofar as they never received any professional ramifications for them. Quite to the contrary, when Norm Finkelstein documented extensively and had corroborated the not just bad citations or failure to rework, but outright misrepresentations in Alan Dershowitz's own work. Um, Dershowitz then turned around and lobbied um, uh, universities to not give uh, Norm Finkelstein a faculty position and set out to ruin his career. So quite, quite to the opposite, the person who was canceled in that scenario, who suffered consequences, was the person who pointed out the plagiarism, who was much less powerful and much less senior in academia, not Dershowitz. And of course, Gorsuch is on the Supreme Court. Biden is president of the United States, and Charles Ogletree finished out his life as an esteemed Harvard professor before he recently passed away. So I'm not really sure if we're getting to the, the bottom of what people are concerned about. The concern isn't that plagiarism happened and that it's not perfectly fine to investigate plagiarism. The problem is whether or not, because of big-moneyed interests who are interested in not having any validation or support of Palestinian students on Harvard campuses, Claudine Gay became a specific target. And Christopher Rufo specifically speaks to that idea. He has announced that, quote, this is from a tweet of his, quote, I am contributing an initial $10,000 to a plagiarism hunting fund. We will expose the rot in the Ivy League and restore truth rather than racist ideology as the highest principle in academic life. Now, if that fund were applied evenly across the board to all academia, I think that that would be a reasonable agenda. However, as he's made it very clear, as he's been announcing what his agenda actually is to the press, he said this to Politico following Rock, uh, Claudine Gay's resignation. He said, and, and you, this is, also goes to your point where you say that this is nothing novel. Christopher Rufo seems to feel differently as he's celebrating the success of his own strategy that he's innovated here. He says, it shows a successful strategy for the political right, how we have to work the media, how we have to exert pressure, and how we have to sequence our campaigns in order to be successful. And when asked in that same political article whether he would take credit for it, he says, yes, of course I'll take credit, but also it was a multi-pronged strategy. He says, first was the narrative leverage, and this was done primarily by me, Christopher Brunette, and Aaron Sebrarium. Second was the financial leverage, which was led by Bill Ackman and other Harvard donors. So specifically, getting in league with all of these Harvard donors who wanted to withdraw money from Harvard, specifically on the issue of Israel-Palestine, and third, the political leverage, the hearing with Elise Stefanik. So all of those things together, to me, suggest that Christopher Rufo is not shy and would not, frankly, agree with your characterization of this as the same old, same old. He's quite proud of this being a political project that is in 
cahoots with or in um, working alongside the, the political project of um, uh, quashing any anti-Zionist speech on, on college campuses, but to use uh, uh, this as a cudgel, to use plagiarism accusations as uh, a cudgel. And, and I wonder if that is, is any concern to you, since this is going to be an ongoing project. They have announced uh, the MIT professor is next on the list, even though obviously she has had no plagiarism allegations against her. And I would, sus I would suspect that if you really believed that this was an academic integrity issue, you would not stop at Claudine Gay being um, resigning from the president of Harvard. You would not want her to teach. Teaching is a much more significant um, job for having academic integrity than being an administrator of a university. So does none of that impress upon you that the goals here as are, are, are more about quashing a certain kind of speech on campus than about sincerely trying to maintain an academic integrity at these kinds of institutions? Well, I mean, on that last point, I, I agree, in fact, that she should not be teaching. I thought my, my monologue was gesturing at that. I mean, imagine if a student um, what submits a paper with as many sloppy, lazy um, uh, copying examples as she has been found to, what are they supposed to do about that? Um, I, for, look, I can't speak for the motivations of others. I think Christopher Rufo is very eager to take credit for what happened. Uh, Aaron Sabarium, the reporter from the Washington Free Beacon, again, did uh, did the vast majority of the work in bringing to light true examples of plagiarism. And as the foremost leader of the institution, I think she should be held accountable for that. Um, in those other cases, uh, I, I again, I, I haven't looked specifically at them, but those people should have been held accountable. I have, I have no—I'm uh, not here to defend any of them. Um, that is absolutely fine, and I can only talk about what it is for me. And if they find—if they try to have, you know, fire this, these other presidents and it's over BS, then I will say it's BS. But in this example, they found something tangible, Look, and I don't know what to say but to conclude that she has to go based on I, that. I'll say this. I don't actually think Claudine Gay would have resigned if not for the Bill Ackman piece. And, and Glenn Greenwald has been very clear on this, too, and said it was Norm Finkelstein, really emphasizing how much of the pressure campaign really hurt the pocketbook of an institution like Harvard University, and that it's the threat to withdraw money. And the threat to withdraw money, the articulated goals of someone like Bill Ackerman, are very clear. But it's, the it's institution about, is, not, is, not, is not owed anyone's money. It's their money no. to spend as they see fit. So if you think it's a good and right thing that one should cheer on, that billionaires who give to colleges can influence the free speech direction of what's happening on those colleges and basically put a... Um, um, put a, a mark on any college president or any faculty member, conceivably, who doesn't agree with their own politics, well, that's fine. But I think that's a, a, a pretty disastrous, well, that um, augurs pretty disastrous things the, 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 for the future of free speech on well, and you know how much I care about the future of free speech on college campuses in America. The guest you brought on yesterday said that Claudine Gay was not actually a very esteemed protector yeah. of, of pro-Palestinian Let me just finish one real one thing. And, and also, again, Harvard, as I re report, uh, repeatedly noted, ranks dead last—I know she wasn't there very long—but ranks dead last on free speech ratings by an organization that absolutely does care about pro-Palestinian speech and has criticized the censorship of pro-Palestinian right. speech. So then that makes, from a free speech perspective, defending her not seem— important to me, and then also we have the academic violations. But what matters is not how good Claudine Gay actually was. I mean, it matters to me. As it does who, matter to me. It matters. I just said it matters okay. to me. I, okay. Those are words that just came out of my mouth. Okay. It matters to me as someone who substantively wants to protect the rights of Palestinians, who we should all remember. Palestinian students were shot 
in America because of their beliefs, and one is paralyzed for their lives. That should be the priority of these kinds of conversations. Hang the perpetrators. However, the media attention is on these kinds of things. And so I, I personally think that Claudine Gay, she still, even in her resignation, did not say the word Palestine, did not advocate for the rights of the students who are being pressured on campus, is still hook, line, and sinker in line with the interest, still trying to cover for the interest that got her removed from the presidency. And she has limited sympathy for me in that regard. But this isn't about sympathy for Claudine Gay. It's about the fact that the perception was, especially following that uh, conservative hearing with Elise Stefanik and that questioning, that she was insufficiently deferent to a pro-Zionist viewpoint. That was the perception. Obviously, that's what she was being criticized for, regardless of whether or not it was true. And I think that what it shows is actually more damning, because even someone who wasn't especially sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, if you're even marginally protective of an idea of neutrality at his school, you still can get the axe. You can still be the target of a multi-million dollar backed vindictive campaign to enforce one view on campus. Even if you're not me, even if you're not some crusader for Palestinian rights, that still doesn't save you from getting the hook. And that, to me, is even that much more damning. All right, well, we've talked this issue to death. We'll let the viewers decide what they think. More Rising right after this. The United States has warned the Houthis to stop attacks on Red Sea vessels or face potential targeted military action. Two deadly explosions went off in Iran, killing at least 84 and injuring 220 people yesterday. The blast went off near the grave of Iranian commander Qasem Soleimani in Kerman. Uh, now, hours after the explosions, more than a dozen countries, led by the United States, issued a warning against the Houthi militants to stop continuing their attacks on the Red Sea. Now, the United States does not believe Israel was behind these explosions and claims the United States was also not responsible either, according to officials. Hmm. Meanwhile, White House National Security Council Strategic Communications Coordinator John Kirby attempted to shut down South Africa's 84-page suit accusing Israel in detail of genocide. When pressed on the matter yesterday, let's watch. South Africa's filed this 84-page lawsuit against Israel, accusing them of genocide. Israel says that this is blood libel. Does Washington agree? And where does this put Washington and Pretoria? We find this uh, submission meritless, counterproductive, and uh, completely without any basis in fact whatsoever. But Intercept reporter Prem Thakar wrote on X earlier, Kirby refused to comment on whether Israel was violating international law, saying he was, quote, not an international lawyer. But here he freely remarks that the accusations of Israel committing international law violations is completely without any basis or fact whatsoever. Meanwhile, Ryan Grimm asked State Department spokesman Max Miller whether the statements made by Israeli Neset members went against American demands that Israel not displace Palestinians. Let's watch his response to that. You know, had similar statements. Uh, you both said in your statements, quote, there should be no mass displacement of Palestinians from Gaza. Given that you both had the same word for word statement, it seems like there was thought put into that. Why, why use the word should there? There should be no mass displacement. Would you be willing to make a more definitive comment? Like a, there must. There, there must not be. Yeah. No, there. And then I, to get to Ben Gavir's response, that's which I'm sure you saw, he posted on Twitter, with all due respect, we are not another star on the American flag. The United States is our best friend, but first of all, we will do what is best for the state of Israel. 
the emigration of hundreds of thousands from Gaza will allow the residents of the enclave or the envelope to return home and live in safety and, protect, and to protect the IDF soldiers. Any response to Ben Gavir's public response to you? So certainly Israel is a sovereign country that does make its own decisions. There is no dispute about that. Um, the point of our conflict, of, of the statement that I made yesterday was that the comments that Ben Gavir and Minister Smotrich have made are in direct contradiction of Israeli government policy, as has been rep represented to us by multiple Israeli government officials, including the prime minister himself. Um, so uh, I'm not surprised that he continues to double down and make those statements. Um, but they are not only in contradiction with uh, uh, United States policy and what we think is in the best interests of the Israeli people, the Palestinian people, the broader region, and ultimately stability in the world. But they are in direct contradiction of his own government's policy, uh, and we believe those statements should stop. So remember the posture of what Mac Matt Miller is responding to there. Remember that Israel's finance minister, Smotrich, and also the minister of national security, Ben Gavir, both made statements in the last few days which seem to nod pretty unambiguously toward a goal to removing all of the population of Gaza from Gaza. A synonym for that might be ethnic cleansing. So uh, Smotrich said uh, that, um, uh, 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 suggested that the war in Gaza could result in the resettlement of the Palestinian people. Ben Gavir echoed those statements, saying it was a, quote, an opportunity to concentrate on encouraging the migration of the residents of Gaza. We cannot withdraw from any territory we are in in the Gaza Strip. Not only do I not rule out Jewish settlement there, I believe it is also an important thing. Okay, so those were the statements. Those statements were perceived, I think, by the U.S. State Department as so explicit in a call to do what both our State Department and Israel have denied that they have been—that was the goal of the siege on Gaza, which is to do ethnic cleansing, that even our State Department was compelled to put out a statement saying that we condemn that. In response, Ben Gavir, as you heard Ryan Grimm just read back at him, doubled down and said, no, we're going to do what we're going to do. We're a sovereign nation. Now, What's remarkable, in my view, about Miller's response there is that he says—he seems to say, well, Ben Gavir and Smortrich, those are outliers. And this has been the line that's now coming out of Israel, that they do not stand for the policy goals of Israel as a state, despite them both being very senior officials, obviously, in Israel. And I think what's especially galling about it is that when you look at Kirby's statements, where he says the uh, South African ICJ petition is meritless, if you were to read the South African ICJ petition, it includes multiple pages of quotes from people senior in Israeli, the Israeli government, including, of course, Benjamin Netanyahu announcing intentionality of various war crimes, whether they be collective punishment, whether they be um, uh, 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 ethnic cleansing uh, and the like. So it is it's difficult. I think there's what we're seeing now is an increasing tension between the explicit statements of senior Israeli officials, the Israeli government, and the U.S. who's still holding this line saying, well, we're all working toward a two-state solution. It's, it's getting increasingly difficult, I think, for them to sell that message. Yeah, I, my ears pricked up at the, well, we're not the 51st state comment. I'm like, oh, okay, fair enough, but— That's not what Akeem Jeffrey says. He says Israel's the sixth borough of New York. Okay, well, <laughs> we don't have to give you money, then, is, again, where I come down. Mm. I don't really—we're <laughs> apart on this, because I don't—I'm not as interested in nitpicking what Israel's doing, but I also don't want to be on the hook for it and don't think we have to fund it. Um, I, like, I'm reminded of someone—maybe it was Aid Jelani or someone like that—posted some video footage from a hearing, like, 
30, 40 years ago of um, uh, James Baker, who I believe was Secretary of State under Reagan or Bush, the first Bush, um, you know, being grilled uh, by a by a pro-Israel Democratic congressman on uh, on, on uh, Baker had had put out a statement saying they should stop, Israel should stop doing expansion into the West Bank, and we're not going to, you know, we've, or, and, and I think opposing giving some emergency funding to them or something, being like, look, we, we already gave them all this funding, we're not going to give them even more funding when we said don't do this, and they said they're going to do this anyway, um, that it used to be, uh, there, there used to be more um, combativeness from, from our government for some, well, if we're going to give you something, you have to stop doing these things that we think are actually going to make us unsafer, because they're going to um, annoy the, uh, the, the Palestinians is the Arab population, of which we have some, and some small number of those people have terrorist connections, and that could backfire on us. Um, is not the kind of conversation you hear anymore. That, mm -hmm. we, that there would be any strings attached to the to the funding we give. Again, I don't. It's not the strings that matter to me. It's I would just not fund it anyway, and then you know they can work it out themselves. They're a very rich country. They don't need our funding. It seems ridiculous that we should be on on the hook for it. Oh, and you can but, also um, say that they're a very rich country because they've for almost the entire duration of their existence, been receiving more, more funding, funding than the United States than any other country. Yeah. Um, it, it is uh, worth noting, to your point also, that folks across the political spectrum have been, frankly, giving even Ronald Reagan some credit for, in the um, aftermath or in, in the context of the 1982 war between Lebanon and Israel, where Liz Israel uh, inflicted an incredible amount of casualties on Lebanon and occupied southern Lebanon. Even Ronald Reagan felt compelled to pick up the phone and say, enough is enough. And when he did that, Israel stopped its bombardment of that country. So people are asking the question, if even Reagan, who is certainly no lefty humanitarian, were will was willing to say enough is enough in that context, why are we now at 22,000 dead people in Gaza, and Biden is standing behind these increasingly inflammatory statements coming All out right. of the Israeli I, that's government? That's what I was going to say. Maybe, we don't know if a different president is capable of influencing them, but Joe Biden certainly isn't. So, Or is, is certainly unwilling to, I would say. I would I would not strip his agency. I think that he could, but he is unwilling maybe to. Maybe they just don't take him seriously. It, and, and because... And because Kirby just wrote off the substance of the ICJ report, I think it's worth reading just a couple of examples. Again, it's an 84-page report. There's at least three pages of simply quotes from senior members of the Israeli government announcing um, what is used in, in a, a case like this to establish intent. That's usually the hardest part of proving genocide, that it, it's not just a, a consequence of war, but an actual genocidal intent. To the ethnic cleansing point, Deputy Speaker of the Knesset and member of the Foreign Affairs Security Committee said on October 7th, uh, now we all have one common goal, erasing the Gaza Strip from the face of the earth. Those who are unable will be replaced. Um, you have, obviously, the familiar comments about uh, uh, Amalek from uh, the prime minister. Uh, he said on October 13th, we are striking our enemies with unprecedented might. Um, uh, the, they understand, our soldiers understand the scope of the mission and stand ready to defeat the bloodthirsty monsters who have risen against Israel to destroy us. Um, we have st statements from uh, President uh, Isaac Herzog, uh, not distinguishing between militants and civilians. Uh, you have the statement saying that we're going to uh, impose a complete siege on Gaza, and on and on and on and on and on. And so much of this was just tweeted out entering into the historical record, and it's going to be very interesting to see how Israel is, man is going to manage to fight these charges in the international uh, 
court of justice, which they are planning to do. Yeah, I would like to um, touch on the Houthi rebels before sure. we wrap this segment. Uh, I saw um, um, a map the other day of, uh, or like heat signature type thing, or lights of uh, all the ships now going all the way around Africa rather than taking the Red Sea cut off. And I think you can't help but wonder, and I saw a lot, a lot of people on Twitter saying this, like, you know, regardless of what is the correct way actually to handle the situation, you know, we pay the American tax taxpayer pays for this giant military and all these ships and all these planes. And here we have a handful of not particularly well-equipped equi rebels who have totally shut down this waterway. And like, what is the—again, I'm not saying what we should do, but what is—on some level, what is even the point of paying for and having this super-impressive Navy armed forces where— a thing like this happens, and we're not even going to do anything about it. We're just going to take the long way around because it's inconvenient. Well, I, I think, think that's unsatisfying I think to the, a lot of the people. The opposite <laughs> way to, to the flip side of that question is, is that it's very revealing that the purpose of us having this enormous military is not protect, to protect American rights and freedoms, but to have complete control over international commerce in this way. Now, we have said, the West has said the Houthis will be punished for their solidarity with the Palestinian people. It's worth noting that they have not done any violence or killed anybody in the in the context of their blockade. Well, they've taken Ten of a them ship have hostage. Been killed. They have been saying anybody who anybody can pass through as long as you're not going to Israel and supporting their siege on Gaza and the ongoing genocide on Gaza. I would like to think that the global community would participate in that kind of an action, since it's exactly that kind of economic pressure that led to the end of horrific apartheid in South Africa. Instead, it's a relatively limited Arab coalition who are willing to stand with the people of Palestine in solidarity at this moment. I actually um, spoke to a Middle Eastern uh, journalist and expert on my podcast today to, to delve more into how this alliance that he is terming um, an axis of resistance has come together after years of sometimes being on different sides of these issues and the leaders of these countries many of them aligning with Western interests for economic reasons and trying to put together coalitions with the West and Israel in the Middle East. Now, all of that is out the window because as much as the leaders, the elites in those countries might want to continue with those lucrative uh, arrangements with the West, their populations are furious at what they see as the inhumane um, and, and, frankly, ethnically motivated harms that are being done to Palestinians with impunity. So, I mean, it's a good question for the American public. You know, do we think that we should have and pay so much money to a military so that we can bomb a Houthi blockade, hypothetically, out of existence and protect shipping routes that enable a genocide to continue? Or should we actually participate in a global society where we are ourselves also responsible and beholden to international rule of law? And that if we want our ships to be able to pass, we also have to respect international law and that Israel also has to respect international law. I vote blow them out of the water, but I would also cease all of the payments to Israel. So there you go. More rising right after this. We need to fund the military to do that. Former President Trump has formally asked the Supreme Court to overturn the Colorado Supreme Court's landmark ruling and reinstate him on the state's 2024 presidential ballot after he was barred on the basis of violating the 14th Amendment's insurrection clause. The Colorado Supreme Court has no authority to deny President Trump access to the ballot, Trump's attorney wrote in the petition. By doing so, the Colorado Supreme Court has usurped congressional authority and misinterpreted and misapplied the text of Section 3. 
The deadline to finalize Colorado's presidential primary ballots, however, is Friday. Now, it's unlikely the Supreme Court will resolve Trump's appeal before then, meaning that Trump will likely appear on the ballots since the Colorado ruling was put on temporary hold. Now, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. weighed in on Trump's removal from the ballot. Let's see what he had to say. I've been outspoken. I don't. You know, I'm, I don't, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump's, and that's why I'm running against him. Uh, but I think it's the, you know, I do, I, I've been outspoken about criticizing the Colorado decision and the main decisions because, you know, we have a democracy in this country. We don't have a banana republic, at least we're not supposed to. People ought to be able to vote for who they want to vote for. I don't want to beat Donald Trump. I believe that I can beat him in an election and that I can beat him in a debate. And I want it, but I want to do that fair and square. I don't want the playing fields slanted. I don't want to have an election where you get rid of a guy who, you know, a large percentage of the American public want as their leader. And you're going to leave those people feeling angry and frustrated and justifiably so. I've read the opinions. Uh, I don't see how they can stand judicial, you know, Supreme Court scrutiny. I don't think you can get... He, Donald Trump has not been convicted of leading an insurrection. Maybe he did it. But, you know, he hasn't been charged with it. He hasn't been convicted of it. So you can't really, I, I don't think it's fair. I don't think there's due process in punishing him for a crime that he was never convicted of. Yeah, I really appreciate those comments from RFK Jr., not surprisingly. Um, frankly, I wish Joe Biden had said the same thing about his opponent. I think that would be very magnanimous. Um, RFK Jr. wants to defeat Donald Trump and Joe Biden. He wants to debate them. Um, he's doing well in the polls, uh, at topping 10 percent um, recently. That's very notable for a third-party candidate. Um, we should probably spend more time at some point talking about his ballot access issues. I think we've had one of his surrogates on, Tony Lyons, to discuss, and we should go further into them, um, because he's going to have some trouble himself getting on uh, all the, because the rules are very unfair to third-party candidates, I'm not faulting him or his campaign for that. It's the uh, deep flaws in our system that is designed to protect the two-party um, duopoly. But, um, but yeah, I mean, he kind of outlines my own thinking about the decision. It is not to acquit Donald Trump of wrongdoing relating to the election or relating to January 6th, but just to point out that this is a this is a very, this is a subjective judgment somewhat, or a, a, a judgment that hasn't been rendered by a, a court fully of, of due process on whether Trump's actions, criminal though they may be, although that hasn't been proven yet either, um, are, are, are they criminal first, he's been charged, not convicted, and then are they, even if they're criminal actions, do they constitute an insurrection, is not a question for a unelected secretary of state to arbitrarily decide. Yeah, my objection here is only to the fact that I, I, I don't agree, I don't agree with Trump and I don't agree with RFK Jr. that the Colorado court doesn't have the authority. They have the authority to apply the constitutional rule against insurrection, just like they would have the authority to say a 12-year-old can't run for president or uh, someone from uh, Sweden can't run for president, Arnold Schwarzenegger can't run for president. Uh, but what the problem is, is that that determination requires a finding of fact that has not, in fact, happened. Everybody is treating this like it's sort of a summary judgment po posture. And in a summary judgment scenario, it is reliant on there being some clear 
non-factual, indisputable facts on the record that you can make a decision on. You know, do we have a contract where I was owed this much money and this is the check that you paid and the check doesn't correspond to the money that was owed? We don't need a whole trial to figure that out. We can make a ruling in a, in a pre-trial stage. This is a very different scenario where what is being alleged is a multi-week scheme that has uh, over a dozen co-conspirators who are going to be called to testify to Donald's complicity in all of this. It is very difficult for me to imagine that unless you're just looking at the fact of 1-6 and saying, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. he tweeted these and these people came to the Capitol and therefore that's an insurrection. Only, only with that mindset could you say that I'm going to be able to find that he, in fact, has satisfied the law here. And I think that's obviously what's going on. People are calling yes. the acts of 160 inter insurrection, which has always been the weakest part of Trump's and case. And Shana Bellows has very much leaned into that in yeah. her, I mean, in the, the documents herself, and then in her responses when asked about it on CNN and other places, has, has you know, basically said, well, you know, look at 1-6. There was violence on 1-6. There, that, that, you know, fulfills the criteria of the insurrection. But as we've pointed out, you know, time and time again, you really have to dig into the scheme that went on in the weeks before. Um, associates um, wanting to, you know, forge documents, hold um, meetings at Secret improper times, meetings, yeah. um, those kinds of things where, again, I think Trump is going to have a very hard time uh, He's because he's going to be up against dozens of people flipping on him. Um, you may, you know, think that's totally unfair, but that's frankly, just how the justice system works. And criminal masterminds have gone down for RICO-style things um, all the time. And Trump's going to be in uh, quite a bit of jeopardy because of that. Now, I don't, I don't know, and I'm skeptical that that, will, that that is also what is meant by insurrection. But again, we're getting sure. into a subjective sure. kind of what does insurrection mean to you, right. that ultimately we need some kind of court body to weigh in on. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, meanwhile, a new investigation from House Democrats finds Trump received millions in payments from foreign entities while he was still president. Let's watch the news break on MSNBC. Breaking news from Capitol Hill. There are new documents. They come from House Democrats showing former President Donald Trump received nearly $8 million from 20 different foreign governments while he was in office. I want to bring in NBC News Capitol Hill correspondent Ryan Nobles. What more can you tell us, Ryan? Well, Chris, I just left a briefing from uh, Democrats on the House Oversight Committee where they gave us this report. It's a 156-page exhaustive report that details only two years of the Donald Trump presidency, uh, which they outline millions of dollars in payments that flowed directly from foreign governments into the various businesses that were controlled by Donald Trump and his associates. And now, it's important to keep in mind that while Donald Trump was president, he did not do what other previous presidents have done and either divested his business assets outside of government or stepped down from the boards and, and stepped down from positions of authority in these businesses. Instead, he chose to remain involved in them. And even though his children did run these uh, businesses, he was still directly involved or had knowledge of the day-to-day -day, uh, business activity uh, that many of these different uh, associated entities uh, were doing while he was in office. So according to the New York Times, among the countries patronizing Mr. Trump's properties, China made the largest total payment at $5.5 million to his business interest. Saudi Arabia was the second largest spender, shelling out more than $615,000 at Trump World Tower and Trump International Hotels. It does seem like these kinds of uh, arguments were made in the past, I think when he was running in 2016, that there was an opportunity for all these pay-to-play schemes, and he chose to not 
uh, put up a Chinese wall, no pun intended, between him and some of these entities the way that people recommended, or uh, Carter famously gave up his peanut farm. <laughs> but even if you think Trump these are— Trump a lot more than a peanut farm. Right. Right? I mean, I, frankly, his business empire was so sprawling and so all around the globe, and he, the, the, he decided to remain in charge of it. There was— no way to avoid this happening, well, given he, that he had decided not to right, you but know, you can, step down. If you, if you want to keep your business right. interest, I think that's perfectly legitimate. You work your whole life for that, but then maybe you don't get to be president. Right. And is that, don't we expect some level of sacrifice from the people who lead our country to not be so easily entangled in these Certainly. kind of pay to place games? Now, you can say that this is superficial, not you, but one, I'm not saying one, it's superficial at all. It's, one could say that this is a de minimis uh, infraction, but given that Republicans have spent the last few years doggedly trying to make a direct connection between Donald Trump and for his foreign business interests through his son as proxy. I Hunter, don't know. But, uh, sorry, Hunter, what did I say? You said Donald Trump again. Sorry, but, uh, Hunter I, Biden. I, but I knew exactly what you meant. <laughs> or uh, we yeah. can finish each other's sentences. Yeah, that's, that's right, Robbie. <laughs> but if you're trying to do it via Hunter yeah. Biden, I mean, how can you argue against when you think right. it's a big deal for his son to be a proxy for Donald Trump to be himself yes. entangled in this way? Right, and by the same you know, by the exact same token, how can um, Biden sympathetic mainstream media people be outraged about this and in and uncurious about I mean, the level of Hunter Biden influence peddling going on? The correct response is that there's there's tremendous corruption throughout our political system, and both parties and I mean, without, families are at fault. With all due respect, the difference is that despite. The Republicans' best effort to find something, there has been no smoking gun connecting any of the Hunter Biden stuff with Joe Biden. So that that is the substantive difference. Well, you can say that you care about this kind of corruption, mm -hmm. but and you would care if they actually found the smoking gun with Hunter Biden, but that's still up in the air as compared to what is being described here in the New York Times. Yeah, I mean there's a tremendous level well, there's a tremendous level of verify verifiable influence peddling peddling on Hunter Biden's part. Right. Whether it violates any law has not been oh, and established whether and whether it makes Biden Joe Biden guilty yeah. of any law. Yeah. Um, although this this is also, I, I, don't, I don't know if it, this violates some law, he should be, they should be prosecuted for it. But unfortunately, the check on this kind of um, uh, corruption is, might, is maybe just ultimately the voters. So yeah. they will, they can decide whether they don't want to reward Donald Trump or Joe Biden for these kinds of behaviors. More rising right after this. presidential hopeful Vivek Ramaswamy went off on a Washington Post reporter yesterday after she said that he failed to condemn white supremacy. Let's watch. You didn't say that you condemn white supremacy. I'm not, I'm not going to recite some catechism for you. I'm against vicious racial discrimination in this country. So I'm not pledging allegiance to your new religion of modern wokeism, which absolutely fits, fits the test. I'm not going to bend the knee to your religion. I'm sorry. I'm not asking you to bend the knee to mine, and I'm not going to bend the knee to yours. But do I condemn vicious racial discrimination? Yes, I do. Am I going to play your silly game of gotcha? No, I'm not. And frankly, this is why people have lost trust. And I know you're going to go print the headline tomorrow. I already know this. We already know how your game works. Vivek Ramaswamy refuses to condemn white supremacy because you asked a stupid question. The reality is... I condemn vicious racial discrimination in this country, but the kind of vicious and systematic racial discrimination we see today is discrimination on the basis of race in a very different direction. Conservatives were quick to praise Vivek for hitting back against the journalist. One user posted, WAPO reporter doubles down. You didn't say that you condemn white supremacy, though she immediately regrets it. Vivek Ramaswamy isn't going to play the game, to which Ramaswamy responded, this is the stupidest question I've gotten yet from the media, and that says a lot. But not everyone was impressed with Ramaswamy. Uh, I posted yesterday, in fact, that 
It's difficult to deny that Ben Ramaswamy in that very clip refused to condemn white supremacy. He goes on to say in the clip, in which we just listened to, that he does condemn vicious and systemic racism, but the kind of vicious and systemic racism we see today is discrimination on the basis of race in a very different direction. So it seems clear there to me, Robbie, that he says, yes, I condemn racism, but if you look more closely and listen to what he says, he says it's the vicious and uh, race, racism that goes in the other direction. And am I wrong? What what can you take from that other than he can say, yes, racism is bad when it's anti-white racism, the racism that's often evoked when people are talking about diversity initiatives or the kind of initiatives that are aimed at creating inequality after hundreds of years of legal de jure segregation and inequality uh, in the United States of America? Right. So I, I similarly, like him, oppose um, many diversity, mandatory diversity measures and affirmative action and race-based submissions, those kinds of things. So I don't have any issue there, but you can also just say, yes, I also oppose white supremacy and I don't know right. why that wouldn't be the And, and it's worth noting, I think there's some important context here. I can appreciate that if you randomly asked someone, you know, do you condemn racism? It feels like one of those, gotcha uh, well, don't, don't you, you know, when's the last time you beat your wife right. uh, questions? But he was getting this line of questioning after he got an endorsement from Steve King. Now, Steve King of Iowa very famously got in hot water now, what was that, a few years ago, maybe in 2019, 2020 cycle, when he was asked about uh, white supremacy. And he equivocated, saying, well, what is a white nationalist? First of all, I think you have to be white, but then we've got Rachel Dolezal, who didn't have to be black to be black. And all, you know, uh, and defending, he says in 2019, white nationalists, white supremacists, Western civilization, how did that language become offensive? Yeah, that was the that was the real bad thing that he said. You know, so I mean, if you are accepting an endorsement, like many people, I remember a job, people like John McCain um, rejected. He rejected the endorsement of that um, David a Duke. Christian uh, David Duke, but also that uh, Christian Zionist who was invited to speak at the Israeli um, march on the on the lawn about a month ago. There are principled conservatives over time who have rejected the endorsements of some of the more radical fringe and right-wing aspects of their own coalition. Well, the entire Republican Party rejected Stephen King. It, it, frankly, the, uh, Steve King, they, uh, they, they stripped him of his committee assignments yeah. based on those remarks. So how do we get from that in 2019 to saying that it is— ir it, it, irresponsible or for a journalist to ask whether or not someone who gets Steve King's endorsement rejects his ideology. And why is Vivek Ramaswamy treating that as such an impossible question when it seems to me it would be very easy to say, you can shame the reporter by saying, oh, ma'am, of course I reject white supremacy, and it is shameful that you have to ask me ask that. But more importantly, I think that DEI is the real horror here, and you can go on and say whatever you want to say. And so I think that moments like this, I know that the internet, and probably us, are going to name this uh, he owns the press. He dunks on the press. But he is now not going to be at the next debate because he insists that moments like this that get him clicks on the internet and plaudits from very online folks do not play well in the normal world where most normal people say, hey, it's pretty reasonable to be asked if you actually agree with one of the most notorious racist <laughs> in Congress in recent memory who just gave you an endorsement. Well, I don't <laughs> I don't know that most normal people care very much one way or the other. I mean, this is a very kind of insular debate. I don't know that most normal people um, would take issue with the idea that w would fault him for saying, um, I oppose systematic racial discrimination and I'm sick of the media for harping on this. Uh, now, he did, he did tweet, I think I mentioned this yesterday, in favor of 
in the same tweet, both this is very textbook Vivek, Ron Paul, who I think is great, and Steve King, who I don't have any particular affection for and uh, agree that he said a lot of uh, bad things and was rightly held accountable for them. So I, I don't think Steve King endorsing him means he really had to do anything, but then he also went out of his way to praise Steve King. So yeah. uh, you're going to get a asked uh, a question there. Um, now, of course, attacking the media and assailing the media is the you know number one thing you can do to make yourself beloved of that online uh, conservative base. It's clearly not really helping him in the poll numbers, but again, his goal is just to delegitimize Trump's opponents to the best of his ability. Um, yes, if I, if I were him, I would have just said, yes, I oppose white supremacy and any other kind of racial-based supremacy, and racism is bad, and we shouldn't have racism by law in our system of government, and in fact, r racism is enshrined in, in admissions and yada, yada, yada. Um, yeah, and but, you, uh, you can include I mean, you can include that you believe that anti-white racism is a real problem, um, among other kinds of racism. And anti-Asian racism is without, what I would with, on. Well, that's—I mean, that doesn't seem to be what he was—I mean, I don't know who knows what he meant by that. But that's not just what he said. I mean, I would disagree with that, frankly. Um, but he didn't just say, I include anti-white racism among all the other kinds of racism that are a problem. He said— no, the real racism. What is it? Let me let me quote myself. You could again. have said, "I condemn he white says, supremacy." Do you condemn Harvard's admissions he says, policies to the reporter? That's what I would have said. He said, "I condemn vicious and systematic racism, but the kind of vicious and systematic racism we see today, and implicitly that he condemns, is discrimination on the basis of race in a very different direction." That part of the quote implies that he actually does not believe that anti-black, Asian. Hispanic, whatever racism, doesn't actually exist. He says the kind of vicious and systemic racism we see today is discrimination on the basis of race in a very different direction. He didn't say inclusive of anti-black, anti-Asian racism. We also have these other kinds of I mean, I, racism in the other way. I, I very much think what he meant by that was affirmative action and those kinds of things. Um, right. Which, I, I, yeah. I know what he meant by it, Robbie. Yeah. But like I'm saying, you can say that I think that's a problem inclusive with all the other kinds of racism, but he didn't say that. And I think this is the, the worst part of the quote that people aren't picking up on. He said, I, yes, I'm anti-racist, but the kind of racism that we're seeing today is in the other direction, which well, is implicitly the, saying that the typical kind of historical racism doesn't exist anymore, and that the kind of anti-racism that he is it objects to is not anti-black or anti-Asian or anti-Hispanic, but is exclusively anti-white. The conservative view, and, and you will disagree with this, but this is the conservative view, is that the kind of baked into our actual system and institutions by law or by policy at institutions, that kind of racism is predominantly against white and Asian people. Um, there's still racist sentiment toward black people, immigrants, et cetera, like throughout the country, but the kind of systemic racism is largely against white and Asian people. Yeah, I, that's know that's, the view. I know that's what he believes. He believes— And that's what he well, would say. Well, I don't even know that he would acknowledge—maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't—that there is racism generally in the country. I don't know how you could well, acknowledge that there's racism out and among individuals, but those individuals who are holding positions of power disproportionately in the United States of America never have the effect of influencing hiring decisions. Uh, criminal sentencing penalties, all of the ways that we know from years and years of empirical research, 
black, Hispanic, Native Americans, and others are disproportionately incarcerated for longer sentences for the same crime in our criminal justice system, are sentenced to the death penalty for the same crime in our criminal justice system, and on and on and on. Uh, that if you have a name that is identified as black, that you're discriminated against in our criminal in, in our hiring system, that Asian Americans are discriminated against for senior leadership positions, and on and on and on. So that, to me, doesn't make sense in and of itself. Well, the, but even, e even granting that you think that the real problem or that a significant problem is what's going on with affirmative action or DEI, he could make that point without seeming to exclude other kinds of discrimination from being something that he wants to condemn. You just add, so again, the conservative position would be that, well, yes, there is still racial discrimination that takes place against black applicants for jobs or something like that, but in many cases where that happens, again, I'm just telling you what the position of the right is, is that there's a civil rights investigation, the Justice Department will swoop in, there will be, the, the system will condemn it because it's against the law, it violates our civil rights law, but if there is, but, but racism against, again, white and Asian people is actually, there's, nothing is done about that well, the civil because rights. it doesn't violate the law. It's, in fact, required by the laws, and it took a recent Supreme Court well, decision well, to call no. it. You're that now conflating the, EEOC claims with affirmative action. Asian people are a protected class, and they can bring a, a EEOC claims, and they are absolutely victims of discrimination in the workplace, and they have the right to pursue those claims. Asian people and white people are not, like, buddy buddies in this. Asian people have been exploited in the affirmative action case by people like Christopher Rufo, who very, you know, this is not conspiracy. He openly announces his plans on these things. But Asian people suffer employment discrimination in a very real way at all levels of employment in this, numerous sectors. Rihanna, they suffer and educational they can, opportunity. And they can um, sue under the EEOC. But the question is, I think, I, and now I have to say this, people who believe that EEOC claims are a panacea should do some research. It is incredibly different, difficult to prove discrimination absent your boss saying, I hate Asian people, I hate black people, and I'm not going to give you that job. That's not how it works. And that's why we came up with it. That's why sociologists came up with this word of systemic racism, because re the reality is that you can see things across demographic trends that often aren't provable on a case-by-case -case basis, because in contemporary society, most people know not to announce their prejudice like that. So as a lawyer, uh, as, a, as a clerk, as a federal district clerk in New York, I did see these claims, and I saw how absolutely impossible it was for any of them to be successful. You can read innuendo into a lot of the things that are happening here. You can struggle to understand, you know, you can struggle to, I mean, justify why a certain person wouldn't be getting a certain promotion and things like that. But absent, the, the standards are actually extremely high. And so acting as though, oh, well, what, black people and Asian people, whomever, have it really easy in this world because they can just bring a claim, I don't know, that's that's deeply, deeply naive. I mean, yeah. I, I, I just, again, the conservative position, though, is that it's by, it's by explicit policy what Asian and white people face, that they, like, they, that they, they'll stop counting test results if too many Asian people are in the exceptional category, that they'll reject the education system, that they will put in an explicit quota, that, again, what Harvard was exposed to do with those people is so, yeah. is so and appalling look, and took a Supreme Court I'm so Court glad that that's, that's over, the, and I'm—, I'm and it's going to be really interesting to see, like, when this happened in California, how dramatically the white enrollment rates dip um, when there's no more fine. quotas on, on Asian If it's 100 percent Asian uh, people, Asian it doesn't students, matter to me. And how, um, you know, little, frankly, because uh, other groups already comprise so little of the college um, participation anyway. If every campus in the country is 100 percent Asian, it does not matter to me. It yeah. should just be the most qualified people. Yeah.
I, I entirely agree, and that's why um, the 30% of Harvard that are legacy admissions are uh, implicated Great. more pointedly in this. What we're actually going to see is that uh, it's going to be 70% Asian and 30% people whose mommy and daddy went to Harvard. So success there. We're rising for you right after this. The New York Times recently published an explosive report on alleged sexual violence committed by Hamas terrorists against women on October 7th. The story contained testimony from eyewitnesses and first responders who described finding the bodies of murdered women stripped naked or missing their underwear, their hands zip-tied behind their backs. Some survivors said they witnessed the rapes firsthand. Now, the sister of an alleged victim featured in the New York Times reporting has come forward saying there was, quote, no proof that there was rape with respect to her sister in accusing the New York Times of interviewing her family under false pretenses. Just yesterday, the Washington Post published and then deleted a claim by Israel's defense minister that Hamas's plans for October 7th specifically included which commander should rape which soldiers. However, just a day later, the Post deleted their reporting at the apparent behest of their IDF sources, writing that their outlet was, quote, not authorized by Israel to print it. And today, Israeli paper Haaretz reported that, quote, the police are having difficulty locating victims of sexual assault of witnesses to acts from the Hamas attack and are unable to connect the existing evidence with the victims described in it. Joining us now to weigh in is the Gray Zone's Max Blumenthal. Now, Max, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Now uh, we tried. Good. Yeah, go ahead, please. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you couldn't find a pro-Israel propagandist to call me an anti-Semite for the next 15 minutes. Well, look, but if you we, want, I can we, we impersonate aspire, one. I'll do my best. <laughs> we aspire to balance in the audience. You know that we, of course, did try to reach out and find someone who would defend the way that this reporting has been done. But why don't you start by telling us, Max, why you think that there are some legitimate questions to be raised here about the credibility of some of the accusations of sexual assault that are alleged to have taken place on October 7th? Well, they're not these aren't just legitimate questions. I think we know that this is a gigantic hoax deployed in order to generate international consent for Israel's genocidal rampage in the Gaza Strip, which has left well over 10,000 women dead, uh, as well as at least that many children. That's what this is about. And this actually was deployed first in December when Israel's assault on Gaza started losing popular support among Joe Biden's base, which includes many feminists. Uh, this, this was rolled out as a political propaganda stunt, and we have to see it as such. The New York Times investigation represents the culmination and nadir of this stunt, as this article, as we've demonstrated at the Gray Zone and as other outlets and independent journalists are demonstrating, is false from top to bottom. And now we have this hammer blow to the Israeli propaganda campaign from Haaretz, declaring that the police cannot find victims of sexual assault, and they've gone to the public to ask them to find them. Basically, we want to accuse Hamas of something that will give us political consent to kill women in Gaza. So please find anything you can. And if you go from top to bottom of this article, as we've done clinically and methodically at the gray zone, you will see how each source is easily discredited by real evidence, starting with exhibit A, Gal Abdush, who was killed horrifically on October 7th. And now her sister has come out and said that her family was manipulated by the New York Times into discussing details of her death and not even told 
that this article was going to allege that she had been raped. And her mother has come out in Israeli media in Ynet and said, we didn't even know she'd been raped until the New York Times approached us and claimed they had evidence. So why isn't Jeffrey Gettleman from the New York Times who wrote this article being asked to be on this program to defend his bogus genocidal propaganda? He should be here or somewhere to defend this article. And if he can't, it should be retracted. Well, we'd be happy to have him on or anyone else who wants to um, discuss what they think are the merits of this article. I, I want you to respond to um, additional claims in here. Um, uh, partway through, they have the testimony of a 24-year-old accountant identified as Sapir, who says that, um, that this person witnessed heavily armed gunmen rape and kill at least five women. And then there is later testimony from a first responder who says that they found a, a medical person who found a woman, women tie, with hands tied behind their back, bent over, naked or missing underwear. There were a few of those. Another volunteer medic says 24 bodies uh, had women uh, stripped naked, tied up, and mutilated. Um, I, I take your point about, obviously, I, I cannot dispute how the family has characterized the example that led the piece, but this seems like um, documentation from numerous sources. I mean, we're not hearing the from the victims from themselves because they're dead. How do we know they're dead? We don't know that they're dead. We don't know that there are victims. That's an Israeli talking point. What we, we also know that Israel collected no forensic evidence. The New York Times claims that because of Jewish burial ritual, they could not collect forensic evidence, which means if you question this article, you're an anti-Semite. But let's go through these witnesses, Robbie, that I'm, I'm really grateful you raised because this is the whole meat of the New York Times investigation and of the Israeli propaganda campaign by extension. The 24-year-old accountant is known only as Sapir. They won't give their full name. They claim that they were shot in the back and then were able to observe a group of Hamas gunmen gang rape a woman, then cut her breast off with a box knife, then pass the breast around and play with it. And then they took the decapitated heads of three other women that they had supposedly raped and displayed the heads. We know this, invest this claim is false because there is no record anywhere of women having been beheaded on October 7th. We know the names of all the victims, including victims who were burned beyond recognition through DNA, and none of them are decapitated. So this is completely fake. And this is, this is according to the New York Times, the Israeli police's key witness. Then you have this supposed Israeli paramedic who has been interviewed by other outlets and identified himself as G, Major G, Sergeant G. Uh, he claimed to have found two twins a 13-year-old and 16-year-old girl, one he said had semen on her back, but they neglected to collect forensic evidence. Very unusual recollection there. Um, and that they had been shot with bullets and were tied up in uh, Kafar Aza. There were no 13 and 16-year-old girls found shot with bullets in Kafar Aza. There were two 13 and 16-year-old uh, who were found burned beyond recognition with their mother present with them, which would have meant that this wouldn't have been possible. They were the Sharabi sisters. And as we know, as Haaretz has confirmed, as Israeli media has confirmed, as we first um, explained at the Gray Zone, many homes in Israeli kibbutzim were actually attacked with Israeli tanks and Hellfire missiles 
because there were Hamas gunmen inside with captives, and the Israeli military killed the captives along with the Hamas militants. So why were these bodies found burned beyond recognition? Um, the, 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 we, we have all of these claims, and none of them stand up against the actual documented evidence that we have. So what we have is a bunch of innuendo and hearsay, which is being deployed to generate political consent for the real evidence we have, the real images we're seeing of girls like 13-year-old Dunya Abu Mosin, who was killed in her hospital bed at Al Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus while recovering from having her leg amputated after her entire family was killed in a U.S. airstrike. She, her head was blown off by a tank shell supplied by the State Department without congressional approval. That's the real evidence that this propaganda is being used to bury under. Let yeah, me, can sorry, I please. raise one more point and then I'll let you jump in. So I, I've seen the October 7th footage. I've seen the, the footage of the bodies, the, many of the murders. Um, so, uh, someone, um, two people at least, uh, beheaded um, post being killed, uh, one with a, with a rake or some kind of farming implement. Um, a man uh, murdered, blown up in front of his two young sons. Um, uh, the bodies of people, including women, um, zip-tied in all states of distress. The music festival, a just an, an orgy of death and, and violence. I, I guess my point being, you know, if you think that the Israeli response is um, somehow the, the, the horror of the images are like lend some justification to a stronger Israeli response. I mean, the things you're describing, even absent any sexual violence, are, are enough to right to like to inflame the passions to want to want justice and revenge for these horrible, shocking murders. So, so we're and you're not. I mean, you're not. You're still describing really horrific things. I think it's important to be accurate. If the New York Times got this wrong, I'd be the first to call them out. I've called the New York Times out on any number of occasions. I'm not saying you're an anti-Semite at all, um, but I. Oh, I, I, I'm we, relieved. We've, we've, Thank <laughs> you. Because I, I had a bris, and I don't know if you did. Yeah, yeah. I've seen. Uh, I, so anyway, what do you make of that? Well, I'm, I mean, sure. Uh, the, the October 7th Al-Aqsa flood mission carried out by Hamas commandos was designed to capture as many Israeli citizens as possible and use them as collateral to exchange for Palestinian political prisoners and captives, including children in Israeli prisons. That's well known. And they also had a mission to kill as many Israeli soldiers on base in the Gaza division as possible because they were enforcing a crushing 15-year-long siege. They were essentially prison guards. And many people were killed by Hamas, including civilians, on October 7th. There's no denying that. But the Israeli government from the onset has deployed cynical and bogus wartime propaganda, including that 40 babies were beheaded and the U.S. media has lapped it up and shown how, how little critical thinking capacity they have. And one of the organizations that has been passing on this phony propaganda is an orthodox so-called rescue group with no coronary credentials called Zaka, along with its Southern commander, Yossi Lando, who is featured prominently in this bogus New York Times investigation. He is responsible for, quote unquote, confirming the lie of beheaded babies. He is responsible for uh, de deploying the lie that a fetus was cut from a pregnant woman. This is completely discredited. And Tony Blinken on October 31st at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee recited 
a deception deployed by Yossi Lando about uh, a family being burned to death and then Hamas gunmen eating lunch while they mutilated their children. So these lies obviously are being deployed for a purpose which goes beyond what we know to be the facts on October 7th because Israel wants consent to do something much more hideous and grotesque than it's been able to do in the past. And the assault on Gaza that I covered in 2014 was shocking enough. So that's what this is about, Robbie. This is wartime propaganda being deployed to carry out a, what I consider and what the South African government considers to be a genocide. And beyond that, it is the, the Israeli plan is clear. All right, to carry let me, out can I just read one more passage, and then I'll, I'll let you get in here. I, you know, we, again, we tried to get someone else who would uh, more thoughtfully critique you than I, but we are, we are left to, to my uh, non-expertise here. I'm just going to read one more passage from The New York Times, and you can respond. Jamal Waraki, a volunteer medic with the nonprofit Zaka Emergency Response Team, said he could not get his head out of a young woman in a rawhide vest found between the maid sage of the bar. We're talking about the music festival. Hands tied behind her back. She was bent over half naked. Her underwear rolled down below her knees. Yanan Revlin, a member of the Rays production team who lost two brothers in the attack, said that after hiding from the killers, he emerged from a ditch to look for survivors, found the body of a young woman on her stomach, no pants or underwear, legs spread apart. Um, her vaginal area appeared to have been sliced open. And on and on. And, and that's how Gal Abdush was described as well at the top of the article. She was either killed by an Israeli Hellfire missile, as many motorists were, who were escaping the music festival, as, the, as an Israeli police investigation is confirmed, or by a Hamas RPG, and she was found with her dress ripped apart, with her legs spread outside her car, because she was in a state of rigor mortis. So just because you find bodies in a certain condition does not demonstrate the thesis stated so confidently at the top of this New York Times article and by the Israeli government itself which is that Hamas carried out a systematic campaign of rape on October 7th, and therefore the Israeli government has the political latitude and permission to do whatever is necessary to eradicate this organization and all its supporters. And according to the British ambassador, the, the U Israeli ambassador to the UK, Sipi Hotaveli, yesterday in British media, Israel must blow up every second house, mosque and school in Gaza because these are all affiliated with Hamas. That is intent to commit genocide. And I see this propaganda as of a part with that. So people were killed on October 7th in horrible ways. I oppose the killing of civilians, but that doesn't demonstrate what the New York Times is claiming. And if they cannot prove this, as we have the Israeli police now acknowledging that they can't even find witnesses, then this article needs to be retracted and Jeffrey Gettleman must be professionally punished. Yeah, I do think, you know, to Robbie's point, I mean, he framed it as uh, the very bad things happened. So, you know, the fact that rape has not been proved doesn't mean that very bad things happen. I would flip that the other way around, as I did in a radar a couple of weeks ago, and say, why? Why would you need to embellish when there was already so much tragedy and murder of civilians that is dem demonstrable on October 7th? And I think that's where you get back to your point, Max, that we saw some of these claims being raised immediately after October 7th that were retracted at that time. I believe it was the L.A. Times that had to retract a story, an allegation, a line about a rape allegation that was unsubstantiated and they had to retract. And then as weeks went by, 
of the siege and public opinion started to shift, there was literally a moment in time at which you saw a flood of, res of a resurgence of this particular narrative about sexual assault that started, I believe, with Hillary Clinton doing an appearance. Was it on, on The View or maybe yep. somewhere else? And yep. almost like a drop At the of United the Nations. Oh, was that the narrative? You're right. You're right. And so I think that's part of what drives some of the skepticism around this. Moreover, I think that what is interesting and so compelling about the study uh, that the investigation you've been doing at the gray zone, um, uh, Max, is that you are making an attempt to use what forensic evidence we do have. It is not true that there is no forensic evidence. The article itself acknowledges toward the end that very quickly, this is a quote, very quickly after October 7th, Israeli officials began gathering evidence of atrocities. So there was evidence gathering that happened, but when there's any in interrogation as to what evidence of sexual violence there is, you're told we didn't collect any because we were too busy looking for survivors, we were too busy burying the dead. Now, that starts to seem rather incredible for the following reasons. Now, I, I want to say outright, I think it's perfectly plausible that sexual violence did occur just because of the prevalence of sexual violence that happens in the context of war. But the specific claim that Israel has been making since the beginning that there was widespread and systemic sexual violence that was the intent of Hamas as they uh, conducted the Alaska flood um, attack. So that is what I think they're trying to get across, precisely for the reasons that you've articulated, Max, because if they can prove that this was something especially horrible, barbaric, medieval, et cetera, then that cuts against any criticism that, that they ha are, are getting from enacting a similar kind of barbarism in return against Gaza. So I really do think that people should focus on the lack of consistency between the physical evidence that we have from the scene. You, if you claim that a, exactly. two teenage girls were tied together in a certain location and the, there was no reporting of them having been there, if you claim that there was a breast that was cut off of a body and there was no forensic evidence of that breast having been collected, then I do think that, and if, and if there are absolutely no surviving members of the um, atrocities that are being alleged and very few, if any, credible and named witnesses to said atrocities that did survive, then I think it is incumbent on us to ask questions as to why this story that is so flimsy is being pushed instead of simply talking about the real confirmed tragedy of the deaths that we know did occur on October 7th. And, and just two quick points on that. Israel is aimed to portray Hamas an organization which has no intention to attack abroad, which is not a jihadist organization in the traditional sense, which is a group f firmly rooted in Palestinian politics as ISIS in order to gain consent from the United States to do what the United States did to ISIS in the city of Raqqa, in the city of Mosul, which is destroy half the city. So they need to show that Hamas demonstrate that they're irrational, that they killed for the sake of it, sheer enjoyment, sadistic, and that they enjoyed raping women. That's part of Israel's propaganda campaign around Gaza. Number two, as time went on throughout Israel's assault on Gaza, hostages, Jewish Israeli hostages began to come out of Gaza. For example, female hostages like 85-year-old Yoheved Lipschitz, who said that she had been treated very well. She was filmed. Um, uh, declaring salam to her captor and waving goodbye and did a press conference which the Israeli propagandists in the government declared to be disastrous. Other female captives have come out and said that they were treated well and that they're, while, while it was a horrible experience to be taken captive, uh, their greatest fear is being bombed by Israel. I mean, here's a direct quote by one female captive, a young woman. She said, I was afraid that the army would try to rescue us at any moment 
because they, we now have seen the Israeli army has been killing Israeli captives, thinking that they were Palestinian civilians trying to surrender. The Hamas talked about it, saying the state doesn't care about us. You're not important to the state. What matters is the war. And uh, she, you know, so you have these women giving these interviews, even Mia Shem, who condemned Hamas, a female captive who was taken from the Nova Electronic Music Festival, did not describe being touched in any way. She said she feared being raped, but she wasn't touched. So this necessitated this wave of psychogenic terror being imposed on the international public through a dramatic rollout campaign at the United Nations with Hillary Clinton, who oversaw the regime change propaganda that Muammar Gaddafi was giving Viagra to his troops to kill and rape women, which was totally debunked and helped lead to the destruction of Libya and the destabilization of entire regions of Africa. She rolls out this propaganda campaign with mm -hmm. neoliberal oligarch Sheryl Sandberg and the Democratic Party's pantsuit feminists at the United Nations, at the Israeli mission of the United Nations. And now here we are at what I think is the denouement of this campaign with the New York Times publishing confidently an article alleging systematic rape and having family members of their key sources now debunk their article along with the Israeli police themselves in Haaretz. Once again, Jeffrey Gettleman mm. needs to explain how this happened. And if he can't offer a good explanation, this article needs to be retracted and he must be professionally punished. Max Blumenthal, thank you for joining us. We care at Rising about presenting a range of opinions, even if they are provocative or controversial. And we would, of course, welcome the opportunity to have on a more pro-Israel perspective, uh, an expert on sexual violence, to uh, discuss this New York Times article. Of course, we would welcome having the author or anyone else involved in its reporting to come on and talk to us about it. Uh, thank you very much, Max. Thanks a lot. Footage from a Las Vegas courtroom where a man who was refused a suspended prison sentence assaulted the judge presiding over his hearing. Let's take a look at that. His ability to do probation successfully, I appreciate that, but I think it's time that he gets a taste of something else because I just can't with that history. In accordance with the laws of state of Nevada, this court. The judge was sent to the hospital, but is seemingly fine. Per court records, 13 additional counts were filed against the man in response to the attack, including six felonies. That's awful. Um, unbelievable. Uh, you know, if you... People have a, have a wrongful idea, I think, sometimes from, like, TV and movies, you know, how much, frankly, of a beating a person can take and be fine because, like, in action movies, people get beaten up and then they walk it off and they're fine. Like, if, you knocked so if you knocked someone out of their chair unexpectedly, you could kill them instantly. Um, it's, I'm glad to hear, and this woman is 62, it sounds like she's not, she wasn't um, terribly injured. They say her condition's being monitored. Um, this person had a record of uh, domestic violence and additional charge, so she was denying him probation. Seems like that would have been the right call, and he's going to face much steeper penalties now. Yeah, it's um, really the responsibility of 
the court staff to be more responsive than they were in that situation. So I'm sure there will be some consequences for those that didn't intervene uh, where they should have, and he never should have got that far. The implications for uh, court officers, if this becomes a routine thing, because you can see that he was almost quite successful, um, are really yeah. drastic. Uh, so. Yeah, that's a. It, I understand why it went viral because it's so unusual. Um, but I'm not sure, what, you know, what else to really take from a situation like that. Yeah, thankfully it is fairly unusual. Um, of course, there are, you know, every now and then there's a story about um, a judge who is attacked or or killed based on a based on a rule, either you know, targeted in the courtroom or targeted um, later. You read about such things, but uh, I, th I think it is pretty rare and should certainly stay that way because we need our justice system intact. So hope the judge, uh, her name is Mary Kay Holtis, this again was in Las Vegas, um, makes a full um, recovery. She, so she's seen in later videos kind of walking it off, but uh, yeah, very dangerous. Any, any blow like that, it could, like, that could screw you up so badly. Um, people, <laughs> we are, we are, we are fragile things, all of us. <laughs> we can, the, the wrong, a wrong fall, you hit your head, that can be the end. So I hope he's charged with every additional um, sentence for that kind of thing, and um, we will have more rising right after this. Joe Biden is taking aim at MAGA radicalism in his first ad of 2024. Team Biden released a minute-long clip decrying the right-wing extremist movement taking over the country exclusively to MSNBC, and we can show some of it right here. There's something dangerous happening in America. There's an extremist movement that does not share the basic beliefs in our democracy. All of us are being asked right now, what will we do to maintain our democracy? History's watching. The world is watching. Most important, our children and grandchildren will hold us responsible. The Vice President and I have supported voting rights since day one of this administration. And I ask every American to join me in this cause. According to new economist YouGov polling, just 39% of adults approve of Joe Biden's job performance, with 59% disapproving of his job as commander-in-chief thus far. In a general election matchup, the incumbent was neck and neck with former President Donald Trump. One former Biden-Harris administration staff member took to CNN last night to explain why they quit over the president's refusal to listen to his constituency on the issue of the siege in Gaza. Let's take a listen. Throughout the government, throughout this administration, who have repeatedly tried to use every avenue available to them to raise concerns because they care about this country, they care about this president, and they care about our democracy. And I think what the president is doing by ignoring the will of the people and by ignoring all of these individuals who have continuously supported um, his agenda, I think it's undermining our democratic ideals and it's undermining America. Do you think that this issue could cost Biden the 2024 election? And if it does, would you be comfortable with that? Listen, I don't think that that's my decision to make. I think it's the president's. He's the one on the ballot. He's the one who has the power with a phone call to uh, 
to end this violence, to make demands of the Israeli government to end the indiscriminate violence against Palestinians. And so I think if the president wants to ensure a second term, if he wants to ensure the support of millions of Americans um, who are part of his base, who have supported him, you know, I think he needs to hear what the people are saying, and I hope he does. If he doesn't support a ceasefire, would you vote for him? I think the president has a lot of time before the election, but there are millions of Palestinians who don't have a lot of time, whose lives are in immediate danger. Mm. So I thought that was a pretty remarkable line of questioning from Abby Phillips there, seeming to try to lean on the guest a little bit to acknowledge that he was going to commit to some kind of vote blue no matter who, even as he has just taken this incredibly courageous step to step down from his senior position in the Department of Education. Well, he didn't say he would vote of, blue no matter right, who. But he left I'm, it sem semi-ambiguous, but— Well, no, I think he's not going yeah. to, but he felt—what I'm, my, my, I'm commenting on right now is Abby Phillips, who was mm -hmm. clearly trying to exert pressure on him oh, in that I direction. And I and maybe I'm projecting a little bit at this point, but you can kind of see her blink almost as though she's listening to something in her ear to ask the follow-up question— are you going to vote for him? Which, of course, is a real distraction from the reality, which is what he set out, I think, very clearly there. It's on Joe Biden. He has an opportunity, regardless of what I'm going to do or the next person is going to do, he has an opportunity to make himself a viable candidate in the eyes of all the people who are criticizing him by simply changing course on this issue, picking up the phone and exerting the same influence that Reagan did in 1982 in the Israel-Lebanon war. He's choosing not to do that, and he cannot expect his own voter base who overwhelmingly want him to do something different, to look the other way when something so significant is happening on the world stage. What did you think of the ad, um, you know, targeting the MAGA movement? Uh, had a little bit of a basket of deplorables kind of vibe to me. You know, whatever you think, there's—Trump is, uh, by some polls, has a larger uh, share of the vote right now than Joe Biden has. So portraying this as some— curious, weird, quirky, small group of people who needs to be defeated is, I think, an odd choice. Um, furthermore, look, I don't know how you can get around the optics. Uh, like, Trump is the one who might not be on the—democracy at stake, but Trump is the one who might not be on the ballot. And also, um, while it did clearly work to some degree to wave the January 6th flag in the 2022 midterms, Trump's candidates, who had particularly talked about that issue a lot, did not fare well. Um, so, you know, fair enough to remind voters of it and, and, and how Trump threatened the transfer of power in that way. Um, I don't know if it's going to continue to have purchase into 2024. What do you think? I saw a clip of Proud Boys, uh, which are a neo-fascist militant organization, marching with tiki torches, um, people that Donald Trump described famously as very fine people on, on both sides. I saw clips from 1-6 where his supporters, who he encouraged to go and protest at the Capitol, legally, but he did encourage them, mounted a noose with the intention of hanging his former vice president. And I think that most Americans, as you've often pointed out, do not associate themselves with the insanity that happened on 1-6. They don't see themselves as violent. They don't see themselves as people who want to be a part of tiki torch-led mobs or lynch mobs or anything of the like. And I think that whether or not the use of the word MAGA is too broad and over-inclusive, the imagery is very clear about who we're talking about. And I think that that's a group that most Americans, frankly, don't want to see themselves a part of and don't see themselves as being a part of. Trump has been vulnerable when members of his own constituency have had difficulty in justifying why they're going to turn out and vote for them. So I think that uh, this kind of an ad is—it's a voter suppression ad. It's not an ad that's going to make anybody want to come out for 
Joe Biden, of course. I don't think there's very many people who ever voted for Donald Trump who would consider voting for Donald, uh, Joe Biden. But the question is whether you think, well, enough is enough. I'm going to cast my lot for Nikki Haley or somebody else who seems more mainstream and reasonable. And then in the general election, if that candidate doesn't win, basically just sit it out. Do you think Joe Biden would prefer to have Nikki Haley as a opponent? I don't think so. I don't think Joe Biden wants to help Nikki Haley defeat uh, Donald Trump in the uh, in the primaries. If he does, he's very just politically foolish because Nikki Haley, I mean, the polls show uh, he would have a, a much more difficult time. I mean, right now, a lot can change. I'm not saying it's predictive, but that would be a much tougher opponent for yeah, him. Maybe, I think that seems evidenced by the polls. The polls were also very clear that uh, Bernie Sanders had a much better margin of victory over Donald Trump back in 2016. That didn't make the um, Democratic Party very interested in picking him as a candidate. They don't make strategic decisions based on who is most electable. They make decisions based on who is chosen and what they've decided, ignoring the will of the voters, which is why they're not having a primary, which is why Biden's not submitting to any debates, and why um, there have been efforts across the country to kick uh, Marianne Williamson and Dean Phillips off of the ballot. Yeah. Well, we'll see how this continues to shape up. Tomorrow on Rising, we are passing the baton over to Jessica Burbank and Amber Duke because this does it for me and Brianna for our first week back in 2024. We will have lots more content in the weeks and months to come. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you prefer to listen on the go, remember that you have that ability to do so as well. And take care. We will see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.